this morning we are in our series, uh, The Holy Spirit, Treasuring the Trueness of the Holy Spirit. Um, we've been in this series, uh, for some of you maybe who haven't been with us for, for a long time, we've been in this series for quite a while. And we're going to be in this series for, for a little bit as well. And basically what we're doing is we're studying the trueness of the Holy Spirit. We're coming to the Word of God, and we're asking God to show us what He says about Himself. God, what is it that you have spoken about yourself concerning the Holy Spirit? How is it that we are to view the trueness of the Holy Spirit? How is it that we are to guard ourselves from uh, man-made thoughts, man-made teachings, man-made methods, man-made opinions about God and the Holy Spirit? How are we to guard ourselves from those things? And how are we to come to the word of God and ask God to reveal himself to us through what he has spoken about himself. That is essentially what we're doing in this series as we go forward. And so we've looked at the mind of the spirit. We've looked at the affections of the spirit. We've looked at the will of the spirit. We've looked at the personhood of the spirit. The fact that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a thing, not a force, not an energy. But he is a person. He's personable. He has feelings and a will and a mind, and he thinks perfectly. And then now we're into, and finally, into the purpose of the Holy Spirit. In other words, why does God do what he does? Why does the Holy Spirit do what he does? And this is our final week on that. And then we're going to launch into, in a couple weeks, the performance. In other words, what it is that the Holy Spirit does in your life and in mine. And this is what we've landed on this morning. That the highest priority of the Holy Spirit and of God is the elevating of Christ. This is what Jesus says about himself in John 16. He says, the whole point of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring glory to me, to glorify me, to draw all attention to me, to show my divine accomplishments. Why? So that you would all believe. So that anyone who would hear the gospel, anyone who would understand and know the message of Christ would understand it, consider it, think on it, and say, is this true? And that is the Holy Spirit's job, to bring glory and honor to Christ. Another way to understand this is to say that God above everything else demonstrates a relentless pursuit of his own glory. God above everything else desires to show himself off. That's what he desires to do. And so we are looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Your homework for this past week, I don't know if any of you guys did it, was to read Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians, the whole book, or whatever the case may be. It's five chapters. It doesn't take long, 20 minutes, maybe 30 tops. But I asked you guys if you could uh, get into Ephesians chapter 1 and read it this week. Uh, Get familiarized with it as we are going to break this thing down. We're going to look at it this morning. We're going to see how God is showing his divine love for you through the pursuit of his own glory. This is what Ephesians chapter 1 is all about. This is what Paul is trying to get across to the church in Ephesus. He wants the the Ephesian church to see how God has a divine love for them, and that divine love is expressed to them in his pursuit of his own glory. And that's what God is most after this morning. In other words, God wants us and the church and those who are believers to see him radically different than anything else in our lives. 
I used the example last week of my little girl, Evelyn, um, who has brothers and sisters who give her love, who show her affection, who, who are compassionate towards her, who play with her, who love her. But I, above everything, want Evelyn to see my love is different than theirs. Although I want them to love her and care for her, and I want her to receive that. There's, there's something about my love. There's something about the, what I provide her that is completely different than what they do. And I want her to know that above everything. Shanna, as well, provides something uniquely different than I do as a mom. She brings her own set of abilities and gifts to care for and to love Evelyn, right? And I do as well. And I, and I want that to be above. I want Evelyn to consider that to be greater than anything else she can receive from anyone else in her life. And I think the same can be true in some measure when we think about God and his compassionate pursuit of his glory to show his divine love for us. That it's very different than anything we can receive, even from our own spouse and our own relationship consider, concerning marriage. It's totally different. So this is where we are in Ephesians and I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 this morning. And I want us to see how it is that God brings glory to himself and shows his divine love through the pursuit of his own glory, right? So here we are in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 14. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, watch this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. I want us to see that phrase repeated three times in this passage there's a reason why God says these things. There's a reason why Paul says these things. He says these things for a purpose, and that is to bring attention and to bring emphasis to the reason for all that God does. It is to the praise of his glorious grace. Watch that in, in verse 6. Moving on, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ 
might be, watch this, to the praise of his glory. Verse 12. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it, here it is again, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. You get the picture. Do you understand what God is trying to say to you this morning? That everything that God does for you and has accomplished for you is for one purpose. It is what Jesus said in Matthew 16. It is to bring all glory to the Son. It is to glorify God. That is the reason for all of it. So I want us to see this here as we break it down. This is really broken down in three sections, if you're studying this out. The first section, verses 1 through 6, is the glory of God and the work of the Father. If you see that, verse 1 through 6 is the glory of God and the work of the Father. Paul is very specific about what the Father does. And then we see in verse 7 through 12, the glory of God and the work of Christ. Verses 7 through 12. And then 13 and 14, we see the glory of God through the work of the Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian theme going on here in that God in his personhood is is equal and co-equal in all that he does in his holiness and goodness and righteousness, that he is eternal, divine, but also he is three. He is three persons, one essence, in that the persons of God are, are responsible for different functions. So the Father does certain things, the Son does certain things, and the Spirit does certain things. And that's what we see here in verses 1 through 14. Three different glories taking place in the triune God as God. So here we have in this first part, listen to what Paul says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does it mean to bless God? Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to bless God? To bless God is to praise him. To bless God is to praise him with loving worship for all that he has done. That is essentially what it means to bless God. We mustn't think that God has done little We mustn't think little about what God has done. Indifference can creep in to the accomplishments of God in your life. As you walk this thing out with Christ, as you walk this thing out year after year after year, it can be very easy to become indifferent, to become cold, to become calloused to the grace of God to what he's done for you, to what he's accomplished for you. And the fact that he set his love upon you and he set his sights upon you, it could be very easy to dismiss that in the hustle and bustle and the trivial matters of life and the the things of life that, that weigh us down and the burdens that we carry in life. It is so very easy to dismiss and to not pay attention to and not to give glory and honor to God for what he has done. 
So what is it that we are to do? We are to bless God, which means we are to love God and we are to provide loving worship to God for all that he has done for us. If we are indifferent to the accomplishments of God, it is because there is a spiritual malaise hovering over you. And I never want to be in a spiritual malaise. If you are indifferent to what God has done for you, it could be because you have casual worship. If you are indifferent, it could be that you somehow are detached from the grace of God. But when our senses are provoked, when we consider the greatness of God's mercy, when we rejoice with a heart and a revived soul. See, a, a heart that rejoices in God, a heart that is revived to God, is a heart that understands what Christ has done. A heart that loves God and pursues God and is, is glad in God is a, is a heart that is not casual about what God has done, but really understands the gravity of what has been accomplished for you. And the substance of our blessings are not found in earthly resources. Our blessings are not bound by earthly circumstances. These blessings do not reside on the earth, but in heaven alone, found in Christ alone. As you can see, Paul says, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Where? From the heavenly places. In other words, your blessings are not necessarily in Christ found in circumstantial things, in temporal things, in earthly things. Yes, God may bless you with possession and wealth and earthly things and those are all good things if you were to steward them properly. But make no mistake, what you get from Christ that is of the most significance is not bound up in earthly stuff, but it comes from heaven and it comes from Christ. Look at what he says here. In the next verse, he says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, God has chosen you. This is what Paul is saying. God broadcasts his, his surpassing greatness in choosing us for holiness and granting to us salvation. God has chosen that for us. And the assurance of our blessings are firmly established in the security of God's choice to set his effectual love upon us through salvation. So just as certain as you can be about God's love for you and salvation, you can be as equally certain about the blessings that he's given you in your life. You can take it to the bank. You can know that as God has set his effectual love on you and has chosen you, you can rely on that. You can be secure in that just as much as you can with spiritual things and spiritual blessings. His blessings are equally experienced. He not only chose you, but watch this, he did so prior to your existence. Look at what he says here. Even as he chose us in him before what? 
the foundation of the world. You have been chosen for salvation before you even existed. Before time and space were a thing, God has set his affections upon you and has loved you and has shown his divine love for you through sending Christ to die for you. He not only chose you, but he chose you outside of your ability to seek him. He chose you before you could accomplish anything to deserve that selection. In other words, a man or woman who is seeking Christ cannot seek Christ on their own, but is already being drawn by God. See, if you are pursuing Christ right now, if you are pursuing God right now, if you desire to worship God right now, to love God right now, and you want to form and fashion your, yourself and your life around the beauty of God and God's commands for your life and wanting to live a life that's honoring to God, make no mistake, each and every one of us does not do that on our own. We only do it because God has already drawn us to him in his choice of us. It's interesting, that song that we sang this morning, that line, that refrain says, your goodness is running after me. His love is chasing. I shouldn't say chasing. I don't think that's the best way to say it because the scriptures don't really describe it that way. But it's more of this drawing. God is drawing you, not chasing you. Yeah, there is some sense that, you know, you reject God and that you, you're running away from God. Maybe some people are doing that. I understand that whole idea. But really what the scriptures are saying is this, guys. God is drawing you to himself. And he's drawing you to himself for his own good pleasure. He's drawing you to himself because he has chosen to do that. He's not drawing you to himself because in some way you have earned some right or some merit for him to do that. This is what Jesus says about this whole concept in John chapter 6. As far as God drawing. He says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Given me. Not, not all that have come to me, but all that have been given as a gift to me. The Father gifts you to Christ as a gift. He draws you to Christ as a gift. And look what he says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 43. Do not grumble amongst, uh, among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Ooh. No one can come to God. Don't, don't misunderstand this. Don't misunderstand your ability to be spiritual. I'm, seriously. Don't misunderstand this whole thing you're in. The only reason you're here, sitting here right now, and that you have some desire to follow God is because of God. Because he drew you. 
He drew you, and he drew you to Christ. Why? For his good pleasure. For him to be glorified. And so he's drawing you to Christ. So he chooses you, he draws you. Watch what else he does. Back to Ephesians, Ephesians uh, uh, chapter one. Um, He predestines, look at this. Uh, Verse, let's see here, where are we? Verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In other words, according to the purpose of his will just basically means because it pleases God. It pleases God. There's nothing else that that determines what God does outside of his own pleasure. That's what pleases God. That's what God does. That's what he's he's after. In other words, there's no cause for God to do anything outside of himself. There's no cause for God to do anything outside of of who he is and what, what he wants to do. And that's according to his good will. But he predestines us. So, so God makes much of his glory in his sovereign adoption of you. And this is an expression of his divine love for you. So God chooses you and God chooses you and draws you and then he adopts you. And so we see here that in God's plan, enveloped in, the God, in God's plan of salvation, is adoption. You have been brought into a family which means you're not only saved, you're not only delivered, you're not only being sanctified, but you're partaking in the blessings of an affectionate, loving relationship of sons and daughters of God. God is your father now. God is your father because you are his son or you are his daughter because it has pleased him to choose you and to save you and to draw you to himself. So you have that as an inheritance this morning. And watch how Paul ends this part of the Father's work. This is all part of the Father's work. He says this, God does all this, the Father does all this for one reason, in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's it. That's it. That short of, sort of is some humble pie served to each and every one of us this morning. It should be. It should, in our way, drop us. It should, in some way, cause us, in our own heart, in our own mind, to consider the mercy of God, to consider the grace of God, to to know that God has not done this because we have merited it but that God has done this because it, has his, it is tied in with his own pleasure and what pleases him to bring glory to himself. And so this should really bring us humble before God and say, God, thank you. Thank you that I was once outside of your blessing. Thank you that I was once outside of your grace. Thank you that I, that I was not, uh, I had no ability, uh, I had no inheritance in you. But now that I do, because you have seen it fit in your plan. And so it's all for his glory. So the chief end of all that God is and all that God does is for his glory to be seen and celebrated and revered. That's what God wants to do. It is to show the uniqueness of his love for you. It is to show his grace, so that it can be celebrated. 
It is to situate the attention of all creation on the greatness of God's character and his divine love for you. Then we move on to verse 7 through 12. This focuses on the glory of God in the work of Christ. First, we saw the glory of God in the work of the Father. Now we see the glory of God in the work of Christ. And here's where Paul begins, at this idea of redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption. God, bearing witness to his own glory through Christ, purchases our liberation from the power and consequence of sin. That's what redemption means. That word redemption in the Greek, luotruo, means this, to liberate on the receipts of a ransom. In other words, Jesus paid something for you. Jesus paid something for your liberation. Jesus paid something for you to be liberated from the power and the consequence of sin. And the blood of Christ serves as that ransom by which he purchased you. He purchased you back. He purchased that which was lost. And the debt of our sin incurred towards God is not simply forgiven. Let me just tell you this right now. The debt that you owe God because of sin is not something that's simply forgiven by the death of Christ. It's not something that's simply unresolved or ignored. But the debt has been paid in full. In full for you before God. It is not something that God has just turned his uh, blind eye to. God has not simply just turned away from this issue. But God in his justice sends Christ to stand in our place so that sin can be judged and so that we can find freedom in him. That is what we understand to be, as Paul says here, the redemption that is in Christ the redemption that is in him. Not any man could have stood in our place. Not any man could have gone to the cross. Not any man could, could do this and accomplish this for you and for me. But only one man. One man. And that too signals and shows us and draws our attention to the glory of God. Why is it that Christ is the only man that can go in our place? Because Christ is the only man that has come and has lived on this earth and has been completely blameless before God. That in him was no sin and he knew no sin and he goes to the cross so that he can be sin for us. And take that on and redeem us from the penalty and the consequence of that which we have offended God with. God is holy and just and righteous and good. And he demands perfection from you and me. Fortunately, because we cannot do that, we have someone who has stood in our place so that God sees us as Christ, as Christ goes to the cross for us. 
And this all takes place, look what Paul says, through his blood. Watch this. The redemption comes through the blood of Christ. Now, let me just say this for a moment. There's nothing magical or mystical about the blood of Christ. There's nothing about the blood of Christ that's any different from anyone else's human blood. He had the same human blood that's coursing through your veins and my veins. There is nothing specifically different about Christ's blood. It's, it's not so much about the blood of Christ, it is, but it's something much bigger than that. And there's been teachings along the line that have sort of venerated the blood of Christ to say, oh, it's Christ's unique blood, the only blood that could actually save men through dying. And, and, and nothing in the text alludes to that at all. It is that, that God and has chosen Christ and that God has in his son given Christ for us and his blood really is this idea that of uh, that represents his his death so it's it's not to say that we have to in some way sort of elevate the blood of christ he was truly a man he was truly a man like me and you and the blood that went through his veins was like our blood i don't know what type he was but he had a blood type I don't know if it was B or A, I don't know, I don't know, right? But there was nothing specifically different about that. But the blood represents this broader reality of his sacrificial death for you and for me and its spiritual significance. Let me put it this way. We are not saved by Christ's sinless life, That's not how we're saved. We are not saved by his miraculous works. That's not how we're saved. We are not saved by his moral example. We're not saved by his teachings. We are saved by one thing, through his death. Through his death. That has delivered us from sin and death through his and that's what Paul's trying to get across here. And this is all for one purpose, as we'll get to in a moment. But look with me here. He has redemption in the blood, forgiveness of sin. God testifies to his glory in Christ's substitutionary death as the sufficient means for the forgiveness of our sin. Christ's work not only liberates us from the power of sin and its disastrous, disastrous effects, but pardons us through forgiveness. In other words, the guilt of your sin can no longer be held against you. And you have been restored to a loving God. And Christ satisfies the requirements of God's justice on your behalf. And that is how we see the glory of God in the work of Christ. Finally, it's his inheritance. Look what, look what Paul says here, uh, continuing in this verse. He says this, In him we have redemption, we have forgiveness, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in, thing, in him, all things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having be, 
being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accord to his counsel. In other words, God has a strategic, deliberate plan for everything, and that is his counsel. And that strategic, deliberate plan is in accord with his will. In other words, God has a desire to do something, but God not only has a desire to do something, but he has a specific way in which he does it, and he does it perfectly. Unlike us who make plans, we often fall short on those plans. Oftentimes, we will make promises and fall short on those promises. Oftentimes, we will guarantee things for people and we can't come through. Those are just the realities of life. We disappoint people. We let people down. We've been let down. We've been disappointed. The plans that we have made concerning all of the things that we want to accomplish don't always end up being what takes place. I have a plan to love my children unconditionally all the time and never get mad at them. I'll break that plan probably in about an hour and a half. I'll just get personal for a moment. There have been things that I've promised to people in this church that I've failed on. You know? There have been things that I have desired to do in my role here and for Shanna and I, and I have fallen short. I have not kept promises to people in this church. You know? And that's the reality of life. It doesn't mean we resign ourselves to not making changes and not improving on our relationships and not being better at following through. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God's glory is found in the counsel of his will. God is strategic and purposeful in all that he does and never once fails to do something he hasn't promised. That's assuring this morning, I hope, for for you and me. Because where we fail and when we fall short, we have a loving God that forgives. We have a loving God that restores. Why? Because he's never failed. And he loves you. And his divine love is upon you because he has chosen you for himself. So we have been given an inheritance to the praise of his glory. God has given this to the praise of his glory, and we see it in in verse, um, let's see, where are we? In verse 12. This is a repeating phrase that intensifies the emphasis of all that God desires to do. God has a will, and he desires to do it, and he has a purpose, and he does it perfectly. And all of God's will and purposes and counsel find their chief end in his passionate zeal for his own glory. In other words, God does everything, if you haven't figured this out by now, to bring glory to himself. And finally, the glory of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, verses, 17 to 19, or verses 13 to 14. I want us to read this and we'll wrap up. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Let me park there for a minute. You have heard the word of truth. How is it that you believe? How is it that anyone can believe? They have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the word of truth. In other words, there's only one word of truth, and that is everything that is wrapped up in the person and the ministry and the work of Christ. The gospel is only defined by one thing, and that is the word of truth. There is no error, there is no falseness in the word of truth. There is no, there is no change. Uh, there is everything, uh, everything comes down to uh, this idea that the word of the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, the good news, is synonymous with the word of truth. In other words, everything about the gospel is true. Everything about the gospel shows God to be who he is and the truthfulness of who he is. In other words, there's no deception in the gospel. There's no manipulation in the gospel, but the gospel is declared in all of its raw form, calls people to repentance, calls people to return to God, calls people to leave their life of sin and come and be restored to God. And that is the only true word that brings salvation to men and women in Christ. He says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, you believed we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There it is again. To the praise of his glory. In other words, you've been sealed in salvation. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 6? He said, what is the will of my Father? That I will not lose all that he has given me. I will not lose all that he has given me. You have come to Christ. You have been drawn to Christ. Christ will keep you. He will keep you. So you are sealed. God uncloaks his glory in assuring us of his sufficient ability in authenticating and maintaining our salvation. In other words, the only reason why you're saved right now, if it was up to you to maintain your salvation, forget it. You're done. You're toast. You're absolute toast. You, in your own abilities, cannot maintain your salvation right? God comes. He grants you the grace. He gives you the truth. He grants you the grace to believe. You believe. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. And God keeps you there. God keeps you there. Now, let me just say, this is not some form of fatalism, right? It's not that, oh, I believe now I can go ahead and live life however I want. And you know what? God will keep me. Because God says, you know, I'll keep those who I have or those that I've kept. I'll keep all those that, have, that are drawn to me. No, that, that, that's, that's cheap grace. That's cheap grace. That is, that is devalued grace. God is not saving those who are rebellious towards him. But here's the thing. When God draws you and when God seals you, what God does is he gives you the grace to worship him. He gives you the grace to love him. He gives you the grace to desire him. He, he, above everything else, is responsible for authenticating your salvation and maintaining it. And it is by the Holy Spirit, God's official mark, that stamps you as God's own possession. You are God's now. You are Christ's now because of faith. And God stamps you and authenticates you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which causes you to worship God. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the believer's confidence, his assurance of a future glory that's coming. Amen to that. 
And God has stamped the envelope of your heart and mind with his spirit and as an expression of his divine love for you. And what is this all for? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That it might produce in us an unrelenting, effectual, ecstatic praise at the wonder of his glory and all that he does. I have a couple of supporting scriptures. I'm not going to go through them this morning, but you can write them down if you're taking notes. Romans 5, 6 through 11 talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31, but I'll, I'll end here. There is a mutual desire within the Godhead to pursue each other's exaltation and glory. And I want us to see this. As the Spirit glorifies Christ, Christ gives glory to the Father as the Father presents Christ with exquisite uniqueness. Let me say that again. As the Spirit glorifies Christ, Christ gives glory to the Father in the plan of salvation, and then the Father glorifies Christ by sending him as the unique one who can only accomplish the plan in which he has desired. So you, as you see here, the Godhead is continually trying to show us how glorifying they are and how glorious they are. So Christ brings glory to the Spirit as the Spirit anoints him for his ministry to execute and perform all of the work and all of the miracles. And then the Father glorifies the Spirit as the instrument by which truth is given to men. The only way we can know God is through the Spirit of God. The only way that God speaks is through the Spirit of God. And God delivers the revealed word to men through the Spirit of God. So God glorifies the Spirit as the instrument of his truth. And so they are all working in tandem together, bringing glory to one another. And so here is the end of the purpose of God. It is that for him to bring glory to himself so that everything we would do would bring glory to him as well. And that is really the chief end of God. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. So the purposes of all the works of God are sourced in the zeal of God to pursue the glory of God. Mm. I think that's pretty clear, huh? It's amazing when you read scripture and you actually go to God and you appeal to the word of God, how much you can learn about God. It's amazing. So that's my prayer this morning for us as we end. That God would in some way use our lives to bring glory to him. That God in some way would grant us the grace to reflect him and his nature and his character, to be a blessing to others in our lives, to participate in good works that God has prepared for us beforehand to walk in because he loves us and because he wants his glory to be seen and he wants his glory to be exalted and put on display in your own life. God has 
somehow, some way, miraculously chosen you <laughs> and me to be agents of his glory. I, I, I'm just, that's just profound to me. God can pursue his glory any way he wants. We see it in creation. But it pleases God to, to, to use you. Like I'm speaking to every single one of you individually to use you specifically to show the world his glory. If that's not a wonderful assignment for life, I don't know what rises higher than that. You know what I mean? So let's pray this morning.